Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the Die Living Podcast, brought to you by Softlead. Today, we have a distinguished guest with us, Mr. Mike Stedman, who we're proud to have down from Newark, New Jersey. You may have seen our YouTube video about Mike and the Ironbound Boxing Gym that he started, uh, which we posted up, man, I think about six months ago. Yeah, it's about six uh, months. <clears throat> but... Uh, Mike is a pretty amazing guy. We're glad to have him here, and we're excited to have him tell you his story and what he's working on. So, Mike, welcome to the podcast. First of Thanks all, for joining us. appreciate you guys having me. I feel truly humbled to come down here and uh, be around you guys at Soul Fleet. Um, I wouldn't call myself distinguished, just a guy, you know, trying to make the world better and just doing it in the best way I know how, which is uh, through the sport of boxing. So, I, I think you're distinguished. Yeah, he so. thinks I'm distinguished. So. <laughs> Um, well, <clears throat> all right. So for most of the people listening, they probably don't, don't know who you are or, you know, your background. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, about, about your background? Give us the, the quick Mike Stedman informational pitch. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was born and raised in College Station, Texas. Um, when I graduated high school, I went to the Naval Academy Preparatory School and, uh, went on to go to the Naval Academy f- for four years. And, uh, I was at the Naval Academy, actually was introduced to the sport of boxing. And believe it or not, even though I never boxed before, I ended up winning three national championships at Navy and uh, two most viable boxers and a bunch of other awards and just really kind of like took off with the boxing thing. It's pretty awesome. Um, After I graduated, I served as an infantry officer in the Marine Corps, went to Japan and the Philippines. Um, Japan, I mean, sorry, Afghanistan, Japan, and the Philippines. So I deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 with first time eighth marines and then japan and the philippines in 2014 and uh believe it or not after i got out i decided i wanted to move to newark new jersey to start a boxing program and i had a connection there from an internship i did in college um with the school called saint benedict's prep and it's a catholic it's all boys catholic school in newark and i knew the headmaster and i just knew that um he would let me coach boxing so when i got out and i was weighing my options I felt like I had to take a leap and try to get this boxing thing off the ground, and so relocated to Newark. And then, you know, it kind of evolved into more than boxing because I, I took on a business partner who can't be here today, but his name is Gary Bloor, and uh, he was running an education program out of St. Benedict's, teaching personal branding to high school students. So when we say personal branding, think of it like professional reputation, right? So who's teaching kids in the inner city what it means to develop a brand or brand yourself? by what you post on social media. Um, if you have an interview, right, who's prepping for the interview, um, writing a college essay, things like that. And so Gary was trying to, you know, create change in that sphere by introducing an Ironbound education program. And so I was coaching boxing at St. Benedict's, um, just kind of bootstrapping the whole deal, training kids at city gyms. And then I ended up getting a space for a boxing gym. And I reached out to Gary, um, who was also real big in the graffiti community in Newark. And I wanted to have some sick graffiti art in the gym. And so once we met up, we just kind of evolved into this whole ironbound boxing and education. And so we just decided to tag team it. 
and uh, build out a nonprofit. Yeah, man, it's pretty awesome what you guys are doing right now. Um, so that is uh, quite <clears throat> quite the distance to go from from start to finish. Um, <clears throat> kind of bring it back to the beginning a little bit. When you were growing up in College Station, you know, what led you to the Naval Academy? You know, what in your interest in going into the military and specifically the Naval Academy? Um, so I was raised in a single parent home. So my mom raised me and uh, my best friend at the time, who was my mom's son, uh, the son of a coworker of my mom, he's about three years older than me. And so I really looked up to him and we grew up together because we kind of had similar backgrounds. And so when he graduated high school, he was going into the army. And so for like most people, positive male figures, like even though he was my friend, I still looked up to him as like a positive male figure because he was older. So when he went to the military, I was just like, okay, I'm going to go to the military too. But my mom, she was an educator and uh, she really wanted me to go to college. And so I started looking at different ways to do the military and college. And that's how I kind of found out about ROTC. So for many years, I was set on going to Texas A&M. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to Texas A&M. That way I can do the Corps of Cadets and then go in the military. Like, I, it's a different world today, but I feel like when I was in high school, at some point, everybody wanted to be a Navy SEAL or Special Forces. Like, that was just like, like that was understood. Like, you were going to go to the military, you're going to be a Navy SEAL. You can't swim, but you're going to be a Navy SEAL because, <laughs> you know, that's what they do. Because your hair is just that so good. I won't lie. That's exactly how I started. I yeah. wanted to be a Navy SEAL before <laughs> <I feel laughs> like, anything else. I feel like when you, back then, when you wanted your military, that's what you looked up. You looked up. You like went to Barnes and Nobles. You looked at Special Forces books. You know, you looked at Q course. You know, man after my own heart, right? Here. You know all that stuff. Um, but then when I was presenting about you know going to Texas A&M to one of my English class English classes, this kid stood up and talked about the Naval Academy, and I didn't know anything about the Naval Academy. And he handed me the brochure after he gave his spiel on what he was doing after high school. And I looked through this and I was like, oh, I can go here for free, right? I was like, oh, this is the best of both worlds. And then it said. The SEALs, right? Like most of the SEAL officers that go through Navy, they had like a 99% success rate or something crazy. So I was like, oh, I'll just go to the Naval Academy. So my initial forte in the Naval Academy was to be like a black Navy SEAL. And I figured that was the best place to go and go to college. But then over the years, it just kind of evolved into this like infantry officer, Marine Corps, you know, Afghanistan, after I actually got there and, you know, actually got around the military. So, so was it learning kind of what the, the what the SEALs actually did that steered you away from it? Yeah, I mean, one, I couldn't swim very good. And, you know, at Navy, you have to go through whole the swim program. And I got really good. I got a lot better at swimming. I won't say I got really good, but I got a lot better at swimming. But um, the more I talked to people, the idea was that, thing about the Marine Corps officer was that, like, if you're going to go in the military for five years and that's all you're going to do, like, at the time, you know, you really don't know what you're going to do, right, or how long you're going to be in the military. But everyone told me, like, if you go infantry, like, you're going to be in the in the shit to say, like, pretty quick, right? So you go, you go through your initial training, then, bam, you're in front of a platoon. But if you're going, like, special forces or something like that, you're going through, like, a, I don't know, two-, three-year training pipeline before you actually lead anybody. Same thing for, like, pilots. Pilots are going to be in school for four years before they lead someone. So for me, the idea was that, like, I could be this young guy, go out there, get a platoon within a year, graduate and be in Afghanistan like less than a year later. Like to me, that's what I, I was like, oh, that's the way to go. And so, um, you know, I just, something about just leading people, like being an amateur officer, I mean, I just like, it just kind of overshadowed the whole SEAL thing. Um, and it was crazy because I know when I was in Afghanistan, right, a lot of my friends were still in training. And so like I was already out there like leading patrols and going on missions and stuff like that. So. I think I made the good choice. I think I made a good choice. 
Yeah, man, it sounds like it. So boxing, you said you found boxing at the Naval Academy. You know, how did that happen? Uh, so when you go to Annapolis, you, everybody has to do an activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I played sports in high school, but, like, I never started. So, like, I was on the basketball team, but I wasn't getting in the game until it was, like, 60 seconds left, and we we're up by, like, 30 points. But, like, that was my, <laughs> that was my, uh, you know, that's that's what I brought to the team. But the thing that's funny about that was think about mentally what it takes to go to practice every day and run sprints and do all that craziness and know you're not getting in the game, right? So it takes a little, like, I mean, and you gotta have to do that for years. This isn't just like a one and done kind of thing. It's like for years of just kind of like constantly going, putting out. Um, and so I think it taught me how to be really intrinsically motivated. So once I got to college, I was like, okay, I want to do a, sp- a sport, right? So I went out for crew, right? Because crew took walk-ons. I was like, oh, I'm gonna be a part of the team. But I didn't like crew. I mean, the first three days were like pulling an erg. This is before CrossFit. CrossFit hadn't blew up yet. So like pulling ergs and things like that, that was all like foreign. And so think you're going to go row on a boat and then you go to this like field house and there's nothing but ergs in there. I was like, all right, this is stupid. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. Um, but a buddy of mine who I went to the prep school with, he was like, yo, you need to come out for boxing. And uh, I was like, boxing? I was like, I don't know how to box. He's like, oh, bro, you know, honor, courage, commitment, toughness, you know, come out, check it out. And so I walked into the boxing gym and uh, the head coach there is a guy named Jim McNally. And I actually coach his son now, which is funny. So his son goes to St. Benedict's and lives with me. Wow. Um, but the first day in the gym, you know, Coach McNally made us all spar. He, like, gave us, like, taught us a couple punches, how to block a punch, throw a one-two. And then he's like, all right, partner up. You guys are sparring. And for me, like, if you've never been in, like, a combat situation like that, the first time you do it, it feels like the world is, like, another world. It's like it's, an- it's another world. Like, your bodies, your emotions, it's almost like a firefight. Like, if you haven't trained for it. Um, it's just this whole like exhilarating experience, but the fact that like people can control that situation, you know, like the, it actually makes sense. Because the first time you spar, it's like you don't know what you're doing. You don't have control over your body or nothing. You're just reacting. I feel like it's like fight or flight mode. But the concept that like people can control this and like dominate this, I wanted to learn that, and I didn't know how, but I just knew that like if I do boxing, I want to be that guy that like gets comfortable climbing in the ring, going a couple rounds, competing. And uh, it just blew my mind. And so after that sparring session, like, I didn't do very good. But I knew, I was like, I want to learn how to be good at this. Obviously, you improved a lot if uh, you went on to win championships. Yeah, I think I had a chip on my shoulder, though, because my first boxing match ended up getting stopped in probably about 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. Uh, I let the the nervousness get a hold of me, and I was scared to throw punches back. And so the coach just stopped the fight. And so he was like, all right, you know, you're done. And so I feel like I had something just to kind of standing there frozen. Yeah, or? I threw like one punch and then I just backed up into the corner and just kind of like folded up. And then the kid just started teeing off on me and the coach jumped in. And this was at the Naval Academy like that first summer in front of all my classmates. And so it was pretty embarrassing. Kind of yeah. shitty way to start a reputation. Yeah, you know, I, I cried. <laughs> Did a little air punching in my room after that. Uh, but I felt like I had to get that one back. And so... For many that don't know about the Naval Academy, we have this competition called the Brigade Boxing Championships. And so it's a big, like, um, it's a tournament at the school for all the boxers. But you don't have to just be a boxer. Anybody can come out for it. You just have to train for it. And then people that win brigades end up going on to compete for nationals. And you become a member of the Navy boxing team. And so after losing that fight 
and everybody's just making fun of me because they would always bring it up. They're like, yeah, Stan, remember what happened in your first fight? So you go from thinking you're like this tough guy, kind of, but now you've been exposed. You've been exposed in front of everybody. So I had this big chip on my shoulder. And so I knew I had to get that one back. And I just kept going to the gym every day and working and working. And the coach was like, he wouldn't give me really much attention because, you know, I sucked. But I got to the point to where, like, he started to have to give me attention because he was watching me hit the bag. He was watching me spar other people. And he was like, I think this kid might have something. And so he offered me a membership on the Navy boxing team. Um, I ended up competing in brigades, losing that first year um, to a guy that had been boxing for like four years, had been boxing, you know, before he got to the academy. And I came up, beat him the next year, and then went, won the national championship that year also. And so once, you, once I did it once, I felt like I knew what it took to do it again. And so that happened, and then that happened. And it just, you know, it was a, I feel like it was more mental than anything else. Because if you've never been in one of those situations at a high level like you know i knew what it took to pull out the edge you know and i also knew like everything's gonna go against you like the ref might go against you you know the um your gloves you might have a gear malfunction or something like that but like if you've competed and you've won it already you know you you're not gonna let that stop you you know so that's pretty awesome man i mean pretty awesome attitude when you left the naval academy you know was there a big void left by not competing in boxing anymore? If so, like, how did you feel that? Um, so I, I would always still work out. Um, and I knew the Marine Corps actually, Marine Corps actually had a boxing team at the time. But for us, you know, those of us at the academy, being a, getting selected Marines, like my goal was be like a Marine infantry officer. And so getting selected for Marine Corps was like the first step towards that. And then after that, my whole focus was on getting selected for infantry. Because when you go into Marine Corps, you're not guaranteed like your MOS selection. Like for the officers, you gotta go through this whole screening process and then they actually select your MOS for you. And then after I got infantry, it was just like, I don't know, it felt like a first round draft pick, to be honest. Like that's that was like the pinnacle. Um, and so, but boxing was always there. It never left me. I mean, I was always working out. Once people find out you box, they're like, oh, I used to box in the, in the gym with my dad you know, in the garage or something. Um, and so people were always asking me to teach them how to box. Marines, everybody would always ask me to, to, to box. So, Well, awesome, man. And so now St. Benedict's, you know, how did you find yourself in Newark? <laughs> it was like this master plan of I knew I wanted to coach boxing, and I wanted to coach, like, boxing. Like, I didn't want to – not fitness boxing, not cardio kickboxing – I wanted to learn how to, um, you know, coach kids in the urban area and build my credibility as a coach in an urban area. Um, when I was at Navy, one of the reasons I was able to compete at such a higher level was I got to spend a week in New York City during one spring break, and I went to every inner city gym in New York, right, and got basically my ass kicked, like, all over the place. But it just had this, like, grungy feeling about it. Like, I felt like this is real boxing. And so I wanted to come back to the north, to the northeast, and get a boxing program going. And because of the connection with St. Benedict's in Newark already, I knew I had at least one in. And so I figured, I was like, man, if I can get a boxing gym in Newark, that'd be badass. Mm -hmm. And so I just decided to, like, take the leap for that and go build out a program. And I gave, I spoke to the headmaster of St. Benedict's, let him know what I was trying to do. And uh, he was just like, come on. It was like a handshake. I mean, there was no formal contract or nothing yet. He's just like, we just talked about it. Um, he said, yeah, come on to St. Benedict's. You can work with us, and you can coach boxing. 
St. Benedict's is a prep school in Newark. Can you tell us a little bit about the kids that are there? You know, what's their background, where they come from? Yeah, so St. Benedict's is an all-boys school right in the heart of Newark. Um, up until recently, it was about 550 students, but now we've taken on, like, pre-K through 12. So it's now it's up to, like, 750, I want to say. Um, but the initial model was, like, all-boys. Um, it's an urban prep school. So the majority of our kids are black and Latino. Uh, many of them live in Newark and the surrounding area. But we also have international students from all over the world and all over the United States. Um, and But it's gained a lot of reputation amongst, because Newark, Newark Public Schools is struggling, right? Like I said, our population in Newark is uh, it's 90% black and Latino. That's the city itself. But only 10% of our population has bachelor degrees. And only 4% um, have a master's or higher. So like college education, things like that are not prevalent in Newark. Yet at St. Benedict's, 99% of our kids go on to go to college. And if they're not going to college, they're going to go to the military or something like that. So the numbers for St. Benedict's kind of speak for themselves. But we have a it's almost like the we have a unique way of of speaking to kids uh, in that environment and connecting with them. Yeah. So a lot of stuff we like a lot of stuff we do at St. Benedict's you could not do at a public school. Like, I mean, no, I gotta ask like what? Like, okay, so first of all, I live in a giant residence hall with seventy five teenage boys, um, right there in right there in the city. Um, they all have our phone numbers. They all text. So if they have an issue, they're gonna reach out to you. So you know, like a traditional public school, teachers and faculty texting students, I think it's a no-go. I'm pretty sure, like, there's, like, a policy in place. Yeah. But at St. Benedict's, like, it's how we have. So. At St. Benedict's, it's kind of like how you have to go, right? Because the kids don't have anybody. Like, you're their everything. So teachers, faculty, you know, if they need money or something like that or if they need to get to a job interview or something like that, they're going to reach out to you because you're the closest thing that they have. Right. Yeah, so how are the kids selected and who's funding the school? So we um, we have a, a pretty aggressive fundraising campaign. Um, so the headmaster, Father Edwin Leahy, he's always out and about um, trying to fundraise for Benedict's. Um, but a lot of private donors. So the thing about Benedict's is b people think it's a because it's a private school where this like elite preppy school in Newark. That's not the case, right? We have to our kids' costs are subsidized, right? So they receive financial aid, and we have kids receiving a massive amount of financial aid. So really, what it comes down to is it's what whatever you can pay. Right? So we try to work with the parents. If you can only pay like $25 but a month, then we work with you um, to get that. The kids we select are basically proactive kids. So kids are going to come there. They're going to apply. Um, they're going to go through the process. Right, It's like self-selection. Because you want to go to St. Benedict's, you got to come. You got to do an interview. You got to do all that kind of stuff. And for a lot of kids, like unless they really want it, they're just going to weed themselves out. And then also you get referrals, obviously, where somebody calls and like, yo, this kid is not going to make it. He's a good kid, but he needs some direction. So they'll reach out to us and, uh, you know, we'll get them in. And then we got, surprise, we have a lot of homeless kids. Like, so I live with a couple of them, but kids are just kind of like out in the streets, but made a connection with somebody at Benedict's. And then we're able to get them in. And then with my connection with the residence hall, able to get them in the residence hall. So we've got the full spectrum. We got international athletes, like high caliber basketball players. I want to say we're like number four in the country right now. Well, um, but it just it, it depends. I mean, we we take kids that want get, to get better, basically. That's pretty amazing, man. And so you're living in the residence hall, managing the residence hall. All, do all the kids live on campus or just no, certain subsect? Just 75 of them. Right. So it's split between the athletes from all over, and then also the kids that are like, they need to get their grades up. It's really like a back pocket program for us. So now instead of kicking a kid out of Benedict's for performing poorly, 
we're able to move them in the residence hall and give them a little bit more structure. Right. And then you have the kids that like, I'm going to call them our problem kids. We have this like behavior modification program called the Velvet Rope. And these are the kids that are like one foot, like borderline about to go to jail or um, substance abuse, um, abuse at home, just all kind of issues that are just spilling over into their academics. And so what we provide is the Velvet Rope where they move in the hall, they operate on some more restrictive nature and they have to earn days back. It's like when they first move in, they can't go out. They can't have a phone until they earn those privileges. So it's a little bit stricter. And they yeah. also get counseling twice a week, group counseling. I mean, how did your background as a Marine infantry officer kind of impact, the, you know, your position running the residence hall? I would think on one hand, you've got this great leadership experience. On the other hand, you know, you're dealing with a totally different group of people with, you know, different backgrounds and kind of different uh, probably discipline levels as well, right? I guess at first I thought, I didn't think I was going to run the residence hall. So remember I said a handshake? So far yeah. the headmaster was like, yeah, just come on, you'll coach boxing, teach PE, live on campus. And then I get there, and then that's where the Marine Corps hit. He's like, yeah, you're in charge of the residence hall. Um, <laughs> but the, at the time, somebody was already in charge of the residence hall. So that was like an awkward kind of situation where I just kind of like come in, they put me in charge. But, you know, it is what it is. And so I took, a, took charge right away. Um, Believe it or not, like one of the limiting factors for being an infantry officer is that you really do have to keep that separation from your Marines because there's a lot of rabbit holes. Like once you go down them for your Marines, I mean, granted, a lot of them are going to have issues. But like once you start getting involved in like helping them out with their rent and things like that, like it's just going to spiral because there's so much stuff going on. Um, and so you, st you stay away from that in the Marine Corps. Um, so you help them out, you counsel them, but really that's kind of like where the staff and CO kind of comes in and kind of gets into that because, like, hey, sir, like let us handle that. But at St. Benedict's, it's like um, now I can be a little bit more, I can connect with the kids a little bit more on a personal level. Um, and so it really wasn't that big of a shift. Like you're trading, like the problems for an infantry platoon is like booze, substance abuse, you know, domestic stuff, right? But it's, you're just trading it for like kids who are like, marijuana, you know, problems at home, poor grades. So it's really not that big of a difference. It's just the age difference. Right. Interesting. All right. So the boxing program, <clears throat> you know, you knew you wanted to be a coach. Right. Were you modeling off of one of the programs you had seen in New York when you went there? Nope. I was modeling off the Naval Academy. All right. That was my model. I was like, because Navy, I mean, God, like, the caliber of teammates I have were ridiculous, right? Like, I mean, like, guys that are SEALs, pilots, they're going to go on and, like, basically going to, like, rule the world. And if they can come through boxing, like, we were always the different ones, right, going to Navy because we would go to these inner city gyms, and these kids, like, they're not going to school. They're not doing anything. You know, if they're not in the gym, they're literally in the streets. And then you have all these, like, I won't say preppy kids from, like, the academy rolling in. You know, they got their shirts tucked in and stuff like that. And people were always surprised at, like, how tough we were and how hard we will fight. And uh, so I wanted something more to, along those lines of getting kids to like use boxing as a stepping stones, as a stepping stones towards something else. So it wasn't the like end all be all. Like I'm not trying to make good boxers. I mean, I'm not trying to make like the world's best boxers. Like the Olympics is not like the goal. The goal is to get them in some structure, spend time with them, and then like use all the knowledge and experience that I have and Gary has to like filter these kids in other places. Cause a lot of times they just don't know like what's out there. And so if you can show them through boxing what else is out there, then that's a win. Yeah, that's a huge win. So you come to Newark, you know you want to start this this boxing program. 
you don't have a place, you don't have a boxing ring. I mean, you got to form the plan when you get there, right? Yeah. So what happened? How did it all come together? So at first, I just kind of start <clears throat> training. I asked the headmaster, I was like, when can I start? And he's like, when do you want to start? I was like, mm, all right, I'll start in a week. So at first, I just had the kids meet me in, like, the basketball court. Um, so when the basketball team wasn't practicing, we'd be, like, off to the side doing mitts, and I would teach them some punches. Then I was like, all right, I'm not doing this because I had to share. The basketball team would basically, like, just bully us off the courts, and, and I got asked by the athletic director to, like, kick rocks. So then I start. I realized the one space I owned was the residence hall. And so I went to the residence hall and would just start training kids in the residence hall. We would, like, push the tables and chairs out the way, and we just practice in there. You know, I had some gloves from the Naval Academy that the coach gave me and just just worked with the kids with what we had. We started out probably, like, I'm going to say 10, 15 kids every day. We were just training. I was getting the leftovers, right? These are the kids that are, like, not playing basketball. If they are, they're not good enough for varsity or JV. They're not running track. They're just kind of floaters. And so I kind of pulled them in under boxing. I basically had to take what I could get at the time. Um, and then they just kind of matured on me and actually you know, really bought in. And then the city of Newark had a, f a recreation program. Um, at first, when I got there, too, I was like, all right, let me try to take these kids to a gym. So I would take kids to a gym. I will pay the membership for them to train at that gym. And then sometimes they would not, like, follow up. And so, but then the city of Newark opened up a recreation facility with the boxing gym in it so I could take the kids there to train for free. So the funny part was they had been training with me for like almost half a year and they had been sparring and doing everything, but they had never stepped foot inside a ring and they had never hit a heavy bag. So the first time we went to the gym, somebody told me, they're like, hey, you should probably teach them how to climb through the ropes. I was like, what are you talking about? They've been boxing, they're good. But the minute like they tried to step through the, you saw everything, you saw like the floppy fish. Like the rollover. <laughs> I was like, you guys don't know how to get in a boxing ring? Are you kidding me? So I had to like, even though we had been training for like almost six months, now I had to go back to like the very basic. These are how you, you know, lace up these gloves. This is how you climb in a ring. This is how what is it? This is how you do a heavy bag workout. Um, and just start training, really. It doesn't cost a lot of money to train boxing. Like you really don't need much, you know. Yeah. Gloves and some punch mitts. And if you don't have that, you can always just teach the the punches and footwork. Right. So that's one of the benefits of this program, right, is, I mean, the startup, the barrier to entry is low to get this started in a place that may not have a lot of funding, right? Yep. <clears throat> All right. So, But then you guys found a location for a gym. Yeah, I was I was tired of commuting. I was commuting to, a, to that recreation center. But it was a little mm -hmm. bit further from me, and it was in a, another part of the city. Um, and so I wanted something a little bit closer. And so I reached out to the city of Newark to, to ask them if they had an abandoned space we could renovate and uh, turn into a boxing gym. And so they gave me the thumbs up on a space. Yeah, the space is really cool, man. I mean, <clears throat> you guys have this space that's kind of under this, uh, uh, like, track stadium or, you know, in the yeah, back football of this track stadium. stadium. Yeah, yeah that, you know, I don't know when the last time that was used, but it looks like it was a while ago. Yeah, it's abandoned. Um, it's like 70s. Yeah, but you guys have been cleaning up the stadium as well as not yep. only, you know, redoing your space, and when I was up there visiting you guys, I know you just got in the ring, I believe, yep. into the space. Um, what was that like, man, getting the ring out from you, – you picked it up in New York, in Manhattan? Yeah, it was – let me tell you guys, like, you guys have no idea. Picking up a boxing ring from the third floor of a building in Brooklyn in somebody's storage container, right? <laughs> and the thing was, you know my workforce was? My workforce was kids. I had, like three, like, three of my boxers with me. And we had to drive out to Brooklyn to get this ring. And 
I mean, but the, you know, it's it's good you have good people around. And this is where I got to give a plug. So first off, right, I give a shout out to SoFleet because as soon as I had a space for a gym, SoFleet was the first one. You guys were the first ones to contact me. And you're like, hey, man, that's awesome. What can we do to help? So they reached out to me, um, asking what I needed, and uh, really came through. So I appreciate that. Hey, man, and then, pleasure. And uh, then uh, this cop in New York City named Pat Russo runs a program called Cops and Kids where he uh, gets he has three boxing gyms spread out in Brooklyn. I uh, spread out in New York, in New York, crewed in Brooklyn, Staten Island, and one other. And uh, he contacted me too, as well, and was like, "Hey, man, I believe in what you're doing," because he had known me from my Naval Academy days, and was like, "Yo, I got a ring for you. I got bags. Come and get it. Oh, I got a, a truck too." And so we went, and uh, luckily we were able to load the ring in the truck. But it took it took all day. I almost died like carrying this thing in. And every literally like it was crazy just getting that ring. Just getting it downstairs into the truck and then getting it all the way back to Newark and then having to get it upstairs again with a bunch of teenagers. Um, but it was all worth it now because when I go back in that place, like, I absolutely love the gym. Like, it's it's impressive to look at what it was like before we moved in and to see what it's like now, like, full of kids, everyone's working out, everyone's having a good, good time, and knowing that, like, our blood, sweat, and tears went into that. Like, me, Gary, and the kids. I mean, we... You talked about the stadium. We like to renovate abandoned stuff. Like that's how we get the. That's why we make it easy for people. We're not asking for your new building. We're saying like, hey, that you see that building over there that nobody's using. We want to use that. Can we take it? And so you know, doing that with the boxing and then the stadium cleanup was my business partner. His longtime um, wife uh, passed away from cancer, and so he wanted to paint a, a tr tribute to her. And so he one of the ways he deals with it is through graffiti. And art, and that's why he's so big in the art thing. And so we did this. He does this event called Paint for Pink, and this was the third year. But she literally, his his partner really, literally passed away in the process of doing this gym. And so we want to really, you know, do a big event for it. And so that's where the stadium cleanup came because this this thing was abandoned. It was like grown over. Um, there are people living back there. I mean, it's all jacked up. But we went back there with a bunch of kids and chainsaws and created a place and put put up a bunch of graffiti murals using pink. Pink, uh, paint. It's pretty awesome, man. Yeah, I mean, the space, when I saw it, you guys had just gotten the ring in there. You yeah. were still kind of finishing it out. Um, I mean, it went from basically like this kind of abandoned, like kind of almost like storage type room. It looks yeah. like no one had been in there for decades. You guys cleaned that out, and you're able to get the kids there on a regular basis. I know when I was there, you were driving the kids over there yourself. Yeah, still drive the kids over. <clears> but <throat> now... Um, they just know, like, school gets out at 3.30. I mean, school gets out about 3.05, 3.10. They meet me at my car at, like, 3.30, and we go over. And then if they can't, like, fit in my car, I send them on a bus or you try to make a run. Like, you figure out ways to make it work, but the thing is, like, you just help them out. So, like, I give out bus money and stuff like that all the time, but it's worth it. And uh, as word spreads through, like, Instagram and stuff, kids show up from other schools and other communities. I mean, it's just... But, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'm going to always – I'll never go to a boxing gym and not bring at least two or three kids with me because that just defeats the purpose for me. Now, sometimes, like, I'll go get a workout in myself, but then I'll still come back later. Like, I, that's just my rule. Like, never go to the gym without bringing a kid or, or two with you. Do you like coaching more than competing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, this is going to sound crazy. I remember the first time somebody called me, like, lieutenant. Like, it was, like, this big – feeling you know what i'm saying and at the same time like when you pin on captain it's like oh you know i've made it but like the first time someone called me coach i was like wait what because like when i was coming up like people have like 10 coaches now back in the day you had like one or two coaches and like so you know how you think about those coaches and the role they play 
like how you still talk to them and they're still your mentors. And so the first time I was like, hey, coach, what should I do today? And I'm just like, I'm like, bro, I'm like 27. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a coach, you know? But like, it kind of resonates with me. So it's yeah. crazy. Like, even my coach's son calls me coach, right? And it's so, it's just, it's just trippy to me. But no, nah, I like coaching better because you actually, and there's just so much buying in it. Like, that's all the kids really like. They like somebody giving them attention because there's nobody, there's nobody giving them attention. And if they are, it's not on like a consistent basis. And so that's why boxing has been our like methodology so far is because it gives you that same thing like military. Like, how do you know one of your Marines is fucked up, right? Because you see him every single day. Then one day he comes in, he's looking all disheveled, and you know something's not right. So then you can start digging. Same thing for the kids, right? Like, I'm with them every day. So if there's something wrong, I'm going to notice. If he's not answering my text messages and he's texting me for like 30 days straight, I know there's an issue. Um, so I like, I like the coaching piece. How have you seen boxing affect the kids in the program? I mean, so, what, are the, what are the changes that you're seeing? I, so <clears throat> one of the challenges, too, is like when you're like pitching nonprofits and you're trying to raise funds, people always ask you, like, okay, how do you measure success? Well, if you know, I, like, I could give you statistics all day about Newark, right? But the thing is, none of the kids there have to come to our gym. They don't have to, right? And they don't have to go to class. They don't have to do anything. I mean, they're supposed to do these things, but there's nobody forcing them to do it. When a kid shows up at the gym, right, and no one's making him do it, to me, that's, like, our first metric success. And then he shows up again, right? I'm low, I, that's how, I like, I know, um, I know we're on to something. So that's the first part. It's like a lot of the kids, they haven't shown up to anything. That's why they're struggling so far, right? They kind of, like, float. I mean, I'm sure you guys see it on, like, y'all's soft fleet programs. They're like, I'm going to do adventure today. And tomorrow I'm going to do mountaineering, and now I'm going to do strength. And then they don't get any progress. And they're like, oh, the program's not good, Right? Versus like, yo, just sticking to one thing and seeing it through. And so if you don't have anybody around you like that can teach you those lessons, um, then you're not going to learn it. So for the kids, the first thing is that consistency piece. Then the next thing becomes that confidence piece, right? And another thing is that like sometimes kids don't have the most positive relationships with adults. So when they first come in and you're coaching them, they're kind of like, you know, giving you a cold shoulder. But then once they realize that like, yo, you're there and you're not going anywhere, now they're starting to open up to you. And then they come to you for advice and things like that. So I think the biggest thing for me is like the self-confidence. And then the fitness piece. My God, I've had a kid that was like borderline diabetic. He was like 215 pounds. Um, had to go to the doctor like at an early age. And then his mom and family, they're all the same. And now he comes to boxing and he's working out and trying to eat healthy and stuff like that. So I would say like a holistic change from everything from like fitness, nutrition, confidence. I mean, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, I know when we were up there, man, it was uh, really awesome seeing the kids in the ring and, like, I mean, really putting their heart into the workout and the sparring. And, <clears throat> you know, one of the one of the pictures we got, I, I forget the I forget the kid's name, but, you know, it was like after sparring match, you know, just totally wiped sitting there, you know, on the edge of the ring. Yeah, that's, that was Lima. <clears throat> hands in his, uh, head in his hands, yeah. you could tell. I mean, it was... Uh, Whatever was happening was like a powerful, cathartic experience <laughs> yeah. for him at the time. The trippy thing about that video was that that video doesn't really show the whole gym, right? Because, like, that ring was, like, at the back of the gym. And the rest of the gym, there was, like, water everywhere. You know, like, it was not what it looks like today. We just had scaffolding up. I mean, yeah, you're we still setting everything we're up. still setting up. But the fact <clears> of the matter is, like, can you imagine walking in a place like that with, like, five teenagers and being like, this is our new gym? They're looking at you like, yeah, right. Then we're like, all right, we're having practice here it's tomorrow. Like the, that's where the montage starts. Yeah, it's like we're having practice here tomorrow. And they're like, what? So then it holds you accountable, right? Because the kids are like looking, they, like, 
they've been there from the beginning. So it's crazy that they're there training with me when I have like a ring up in one bag and leaky water. And now to I like them to see like the fruits of the labor. So like now they see the gym. Some of them have gone on and graduated. Um and that since that since that video happened. But yeah, man, it's just they are trust you, us. Are you following those kids who have graduated? Oh, absolutely, man. How they, are they doing? They're doing good. <clears throat> one guy is a one guy is a DJ actually. He goes to Rutgers. Um, and the other guy is um he's actually thinking about being a monk. But he's trying to find out if he wants to do it first. Benedictine, I assume? No, I don't know what it is. He's like in D.C. somewhere doing it. But you know how we keep in track? Instagram. We have a little group chat on Instagram. And so we're always chatting through there. And they're also roasting me on all my photos. Like every time (laughs) they're like, Coach, you got fat or something like that. So we interact constantly. They got to hold you to it, man. Yeah. Well, all right. So switching gears a little bit. You know, recently you took a position as the veteran veteran in residence at Bunker Labs. Right, the community and, manager for the VIR program. All right, and you were also out at Stanford. Yeah, I was at Stanford this summer. All right, so you can tell us a little bit about all of that, like where where you're going, what are you, what you're doing, what the plans are. Yeah. So I had a I had a buddy of mine who was coming back from the program at Stanford last summer. We were going to a bachelor party, and I was picking him up from the airport in Newark. What program is this? The Stanford Ignite program. It's offered to post 9-11 veterans. Um, it is an entrepreneurship program. It's really like an incubator for like four weeks where they teach you how to take an idea from like just this idea to actually pitching it in front of a board of VCs. And so I had an opportunity to go out there and participate in that program. But he was coming back from that program when I met him when I picked him up from the airport and we went to the cabin together and I was asking what he did this summer and he told me. So then I was like, yo, that's awesome. He's like, yo, you should apply. I was like, yeah, man, I'll think about it, blah, blah. Well, fast forward, he sends me the application. He's like, Mike, did you apply yet? I was like, uh, all right, I'll do it. And then he wrote me a recommendation too. And so I ended up going to Stanford, learning how to pitch Ironbound. I pitched Ironbound and uh, they really liked it out there. And so I actually ended up working on Ironbound while I was at Stanford. Ironbound, just to be clear, yeah. is the, yeah, the Iron, gym. Yeah, Ironbound. The, so the gym is the Ironbound <coughs> Boxing Academy. But Ironbound USA is the nonprofit that oversees it. And so it's one collective, you know, thing. And uh, so me and Gary, we run Ironbound. Um, and so I went out there. I pitched Ironbound and then learned this whole process of, like, pitching a venture. So while everybody else was talking about building, you know, technology platforms and, you know, resources and things like that. I was talking about building a boxing program to scale nationally uh, with education, correction, boxing and education and, uh, you know, impact these inner city communities. And so using the lessons I learned from Stanford, I came back, start pitching Ironbound. One of the events I pitched was a Bunker Labs event in New York City. And Bunker Labs is a national nonprofit uh, started by Todd Connor that is meant to increase the number of veteran entrepreneurs. And it started out of Chicago and has just scaled massively over the last three years. So pitching at a Bunker Labs event, I got tagged to take up this uh, community manager role for the veteran and residence program. And it's with WeWork and Bunker Labs, so the community uh, workspace in New York City. So we have a community workspace designated for 10 veterans um, to work on their ventures for six months. And then we're gonna rotate a new 10 in every six months and there's 10 we call them tribes right so like sebastian junger's book um the tribe so we have 10 tri- 10 uh, tribes in in 10 cities uh, all across the country and so i lead that program here in new york city so i just manage the entrepreneurs <coughs> just keep track of them push information um coordinate with we work coordinate with bunker labs and i'm serve as that constant present in the workspace great how do you like being in a WeWork building it's it's like it's like jumping in cold water 
in an ice bath compared <laughs> to living in Newark. Um, it's crazy. It's like if people don't understand the contrast you have to go through between going from that environment because our our gym, our academy, it's like 400 meters from a housing project, like the worst housing projects in the city. And so to go from interacting with teenagers all the time to now I got to go to New York City and look like a hipster. You know? <laughs> so sometimes I go to WeWork, I'm like, ah, I'm probably just going to wear this Soul Fleet shirt in, you know. But then you go in there and, uh, you know, people look, I mean, WeWork is crazy. It's like Panera Bread and Starbucks on crack. It's like free beer and free cold brew. People at WeWork don't like softly shirts? No, nah, I don't know. I don't think people at WeWork work out, to be honest. So um, I'm still intense, though. So, like, I roll in. You know, everybody talks about how big I am. They're like, bro, you trying, what do you do for workouts, man? I'm like, strength and stamina. <laughs> like that plug. <clears throat> right? It's the only way to go. Nah, but it's good. It's fun. Um, I like it so. I really like it so far. And it's a sprint, right? Because I got to get back in time to get the kids to the gym. But you know, sometimes you got to push yourself, right? Like Stanford. I mean, Stanford taught us. They said sometimes you got to operate at the edge of your own competency. So if you want to get better at something, you can't keep like just doing the bare minimum. You got to push yourself, you know, physically and professionally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, pushing your limits and expanding them is the name of the game, man. Otherwise, you're not growing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So. So what is the plan right now? I mean, I know part of you know part of what we're we're talking about in this visit is you know scaling Ironbound, but you know what's what's your goal for the program? So what we want to do is we want to give kids in urban. So like right now there's this like tech boom going on, right? All these people are benefiting from like technology and all these new businesses coming up. But for whatever reason, like you walk around some of these communities, especially in the inner city, and things haven't really changed much, right? And then also while people are benefiting from technology, the fact is like Uber drivers aren't picking people up in certain neighborhoods past like six, seven o'clock at night. Like it's mm -hmm. not happening. And they'll tell you. And so the goal, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give kids access in the inner cities to free recreational programs. You know, we're going to start with boxing, and then we want to expand those offerings um, because there's so many kids right now not doing anything, and they're on the streets. And so what we need to do is we need to lower the barrier entry for them into these programs and give them access, but not access on what we think they want to do, access to programs that they actually want to do and get excited about, like boxing and, like, dance classes and whatever other graffiti classes. I don't know, stuff that they actually want to learn. And we want to make that possible. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to build out uh, a business model that allows that, that funds that, so that kids don't have to pay any costs. And then all our job is to do is to funnel them into uh, the programs that they're interested in. It's pretty awesome, man. When you were in San Francisco, or, you know, like the Silicon Valley area for Stanford, you know, <clears throat> what was there a discussion going on about how tech has changed, you know, some communities much more greatly than others? Um, is, you know, is that something that people are kind of aware of out there? Is it something they're thinking about? They are thinking about it. Um, and it's in a different conversation, right? So when companies like Uber and, you know, Airbnb, things like that, while some, I've heard the comment, like, I'm not trying to get too social on it, but some people say that, like, okay, the people that are holding these business models in place are still on, like, the lower, uh, socioeconomic totem pole, right? So, like, if you go to Newark, who are all the Uber drivers, right? Uber drivers are, like, basically, some people think it's, like, another form of, like, exploitation, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not going to get into that. Like, I can't explain it, but I've heard whispers of that, but I'm not the one that, like, talk on it because I, I'm still learning that stuff myself. But 
All right. <clears throat> when you but when you're out in California, I mean, <clears throat> you were there with other people that were pitching, you know, tech ideas. You were right. saying, you know, were any of those kind of like community based or community oriented, or were they more, you know, product specific? Um, no, there's some some were community some were community. Um, like one is co- this company called Bambino, so it's like the the Uber of babysitting, and so they were trying to work out that. Now they had a product, but um, you know still using that sharing economy. So I guess the seeds were getting planted early on for me about the sharing economy and how to mm-hmm. leverage that. But like, I just wasn't, pr- I wasn't ready to receive it yet for our venture. Um, Man, and that's then, an interesting one. And then somebody else was like actually working on the <clears throat> ego bag, right? It was an electronic go bag. So that way when a crisis hits or an emergency, it's an app that goes on your phone that kind of helps you, gives you like, I don't know, resources for how to handle an emergency. Um, so Christ, stuff you might forget, like here are all the shelters. This is what you need to do. And so she was working on that, and that was real impressive. Um, but a lot of stuff, some stuff was like very veteran services oriented, like veteran databases, trying to make you know transitioning easier. So there was like a full spectrum. Yeah. Have you gotten a lot of support from the veteran community for Ironbound? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. See, we for Ironbound, like with the support of Sofly and Pat Russo, you know, and his cops and kids, we really bootstrapped the whole thing. But when I say friends and family, I don't just mean literally like my friends and family. I mean friends and family of like because I consider a veteran community family. So you know, veterans have hit me up. They want to give their time, you know, some money. Like, whatever they can do, they've always, like, asked us. And so the thing is right now, you know, being able to do it bootstrapping-wise, right? Um, I've been all right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's, the support is always there. I know they're there. Um, and I just want to give them something. Uh, I just want to wait till the time is right to even access more of it. So they gave me what I needed to, like, get us off the ground. Um, but I definitely hit them up because they're always hitting me up. People always want to buy, like, an Ironbound shirt or something. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean – kind of leads to maybe a next question i think oftentimes people do want to help other people in their communities and and people outside their communities but you know the question is kind of like what do i do where do i start how do i get involved i think for so many people if that's not an easy step to take then that just becomes like a major barrier right exactly so that's why we're trying to lower not only we're trying to lower the barrier entry for the kid to get into the program we also want to lower the barrier entry for those that actually want to get out there and support the work that's going on in these communities, but just doesn't know the best way to do it. And yeah, so, I mean, so for that, you know, the average person out there, like, how do I get out there and support those communities? I think the first thing we talked about, and we had this in the car ride today, is like, everybody knows how important time is, right? Like, I think a lot of times people like to throw out money or they think they need to have all this money and stuff to, like, make a change, but that's not the case. Like, there's so many opportunities out there to go just give your time. Even if it's just one kid, I think sometimes we think big picture, like, oh, my God, I need to, like, do this amazing program for, like, 100 kids. But just go spend time with, like, one person. Try to get to know them. Try to understand their situation. And then that way, at least you're an ambassador for, like, what they're dealing with. You're able to have some empathy um, for those situations. And so I think um, for people that want to get out there and help, especially because, like, there's no – all over across America, there's these communities. We know the communities. Like, you know where you're driving through. You know where some of these kids live. And, oh, my God, like, people don't understand the conditions some of these kids live in. So just going out there and giving them time and giving them alternative, um, teaching them what you do, you know? You do CrossFit, teach somebody how to do CrossFit, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that was, I mean, kind of how Brent and I met originally was talking about how we could build a network 
for the Silent Warrior Scholarship Fund, right. um, which is now the Silent Warrior uh, Foundation, really to help. <clears throat> okay, you know, the question for me was kind of like, you have this pipeline of kids that are going to school and getting scholarships. You know, what happens afterwards? How do you right. continue to support that effort? And, you know, the biggest thing I think is that people are willing to give time, which I agree is often often more valuable than money. Um but because people don't know necessarily how to help, maybe if we create like this network of, of professionals and that can be available for people who are getting out of school, coming off the scholarships and be able to point them to, a, you know, a possible connection, even if it's only informational. Um, you're spot, I mean, you're spot on with that because like one of the reasons Benedict's is effective too is because mm-hmm. we have this like military always like West Point, they have this thing like the long gray line, right? Being Naval Academy, there's always a Naval Academy alumni around, right? But if you're from like urban area and you go off to college, say you make it out, you go to like Princeton or somewhere, well, who are you talking to? Who are you leveraging? And so giving people like mentors and access and things like that, I mean, you guys are spot on with that. That could be something huge to where when they graduate college and they're thinking about that next job that they have somebody they can, you know, talk to and can point them in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing for for most people, you know, we were talking about this before, uh, you know, everyone in this country loves to paint this picture of, you know, the American capitalist society as completely being merit-based. And I, I believe that that is part of the American dream and, and that it's true. You know, anyone can come and, well, not anyone can come, but like if you're if you're in America, you're an American citizen, doesn't matter what your background is, you know, you have an opportunity to like pull yourself up and start a business, et cetera. <clears throat> the reality is that while that is true, like so much of it is based on relationships. Like yep, you don't, network. you never do anything by yourself. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so without that network, you know, without those relationships and it doesn't have to be a, like a nepotistic type of thing or like a handout type of thing. Um, But the idea is that if you have to figure everything out on your own, it's way harder than if you have a a network. It's also stupid, right? Yeah. Like if you try to figure out everything out on your own, but people have already done it, right? Leverage those people, right? We call it military. We call it lessons learned. But for a lot of people, you don't know. Like I didn't, you don't know anything. You think you're like up against the world, but there's other people that have already faced the exact same thing. So it only makes sense to like reach out to people, um, yeah. But unfortunately, if you don't have access to those people, then you're kind of stuck. Right. So, I mean, how do you suggest that people kind of connect with the you know communities outside of their own, or connect specifically with Ironbound, you know, t- to kind of help out in whatever way they can if it isn't money that they're donating? Um. So f- for us, like one of the things that's been huge for me with the veteran community is I sent a kid from Newark to North Carolina State. Right. He's running track in North Carolina State, and because of the relationships I've made while stationed in North Carolina, I know a family down there. And so when he got down there, I told him, I was like, hey, reach out to these people. I talked to them. I was like, hey, make sure you guys reach out to Edwin. Um, and so as soon as he got down there, he had a he wasn't going out by, his, by himself, right? He basically walked into, like, a community and family. And so for biggest thing like that, like, to help Ironbound, like, people keep doing what they're doing because, like, we can send a kid anywhere in the United States and somebody will be able to go check on them. And so... Um, making yourself available for that. It doesn't have to be like all the time or something, but just know that like if I send a kid somewhere and something happens or he might need some help or something like that and you're like, hey, I'm like three hours away, but man, if there's an issue, let me know, have them reach out to me. 
So that's the first piece. And the second piece is just mentorship because we're still growing. I mean, obviously, we need funds mm-hmm. because we're a nonprofit, right? So um, we're bootstrapping. But, like, we also need to learn um, how to impact more kids and how to do it efficiently so that way, you know, when we money that comes in um, and opportunities that come our way are taken advantage of. And yeah, so, well, where can people donate to Ironbound? So for those that want to donate, they can go visit our website, ironboundusa.org. There's a donate button on the on the page, and then they can go there. They can also um, mail me directly at Mike Stedman. Uh, Mike, uh, they can eat. Sorry, they can send me an email, Mike, at ironboundboxing.org, and send them uh, communicate via email um, and communicate back and forth like that. Cool. And so, <clears throat> you know, going back to what you, you were saying after that. You know, how do you scale a program like this? Well, the thing, at first we wanted to scale the gyms, right? We wanted to build out these Ironbound campuses that was going to have a boxing gym, career center, technology center, art studio. So we used to say, like, the 21st Century Boys and Girls Club. But more recently we realized that, like, hey, there's plenty of, pe- plenty of people already doing good work out there, right? There's the, you know, the gym owner that already has, like, a social aspect where he's training teens or there's a there's, like, tons of boxing gyms everywhere and there's nonprofits doing amazing programs and services. So what we want to do now is just push kids into those existing programs. And the thing that we want to do is be the ones to help funnel that, make that happen, and raise money to do so. So that's how you scale it. We scale it by utilizing a sharing economy and taking advantage of the underutilized assets that we already have all across the country. I like it, man. So that's the first time I've ever said that. So I'm gonna go ahead and pat myself on the back for you. You know what? You're lucky because we are recording this, as yeah. it turns out. And I'm so, gonna take some notes off this show, right? So. <clears throat> Listen to it, take notes, enhance the game. Um, so you think what's next? Another another boxing gym in Newark? Branch out to New York City? Somewhere else? So I think our boxing gym is pretty special, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't have to build anymore. What I want to do is uh, the next piece is um, continuing to spread this message of what we're trying to do, what we want to create with this Ironbound network, and then raise funds and then push kids into recreation centers all across the city of Newark, right? There's 7,000 kids right now not doing anything. If we can lower that number just a little bit, right, then to us that's success. And so that's the next phase is like taking this vision that we're talking about today on this podcast and actually getting out there and making it happen and getting people behind us that believe in what we're trying to do. I like it, man. So all you guys that are listening in for some workout stuff, I apologize. We got pretty social today. Nah, man, we got plenty of workout stuff on the podcast. George records podcasts and gets deep into the training aspect. So you know what? Sometimes we got to talk about some other things, too. And our kids love y'all's pre-work. I'm not pre-workout. They love y'all's protein. I bet they do love the pre-workout too, man. (laughs) They're always asking. They're always asking about the pre-workout. I'm like, no, you can't touch that. No, stay stay away from that. Man, I feel like if you're 16 years old, you don't don't need none of that. um, You guys don't know, but you know, SoFleet sends us protein every month, and it's like I didn't start taking protein until I was in, you know, the military. It's expensive, right? Like, so you gotta actually go. So for these kids. This is huge for them because they wouldn't be able to afford it. They love it, man. They're always making smoothies and all kind of stuff. Like I, was, I always send Bill, you know, some photos and stuff like that. So we really appreciate that. Good that stuff, is, man. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was awesome going up there and seeing uh, the protein tub on the corner of the boxing ring. And yep. you know, was, we stack uh, it in the gym now. <clears throat> Every time I come in, it's gone. So I, I stack it on the little refrigerator. I put like I get a box because I get a box of four. I yeah. stack them up and then I come back and they're they're gone. So. 
good stuff, man. I mean, it, it seems like, uh, yeah. you know, it's kind of like almost a good reward system for the kids too, yeah. right? Yeah. Like come in, crush that workout. and. Yeah. I mean, we have SoFleet shirts mobile in Newark right now. Not the red ones, though. We got to keep those, you know. No wearing red in Newark, but we no. can wear the other ones. All right. Good to know. Well, <clears throat> Mike. Appreciate you joining us today, man. No, thanks for having me. Awesome having you down here. We'll definitely be coming back up to Newark to visit you again. So, Absolutely. Look uh, forward to it. Thanks, man. Real quick, where can people find you on social media? You can like my Instagram at Iron Mike Stedman. We also have an Instagram for the Ironbound Boxing Academy at Ironbound Boxing Academy. So add me on LinkedIn. Shoot me a message on Facebook. Um, doesn't matter. And anybody's always welcome to come through to our gym. So um, if you're in Newark, if you're in New York City, hit me up. Let me know. I'll come get you, scoop you up from the train station, take you to the gym. You will not be disappointed. All right. Thanks for having us. Thank you.